Hey, everybody, and welcome to Cancer in the Room. Now, the goal of our podcast is to talk to people involved in sports, people who battle cancer, people who continue to battle cancer, and to let them share their stories, their stumbles, and their successes. Now, not everybody wins this battle. Many fight a long and hard battle, but along the way, maybe some of their advice will be able to help people. It's a full team effort here, Dave. In 2021, just over 229,000 were diagnosed with cancer in our country. Sadly, 84,000 didn't make it, but the message is simple. Through the dedication of so many, we're making a difference. We can never stop telling the stories. We cannot stop inspiring so many to forge ahead. And we need people to know what we do today will help others tomorrow. So we'll try to inspire, to inform, and to entertain, and most importantly, tell people you're not alone. We can all make a difference in the battle against cancer. So here we stand, two sports broadcasters, both fighting cancer, talking to sports people about their story. My name is Bryn Griffiths. I'm Dave Jamison. Okay, our guest on Cancer in the Room, this very first edition, has spent a lifetime in baseball almost two decades as a player, and then later as a manager in the major leagues. And then he moved into the broadcast booth and is widely considered to be one of the game's best announcers as the voice of the Toronto Blue Jays. He's also a published author, too. His most recent book is called How to Make the Great Game of Baseball Even Better. Please welcome Buck Martinez. Uh, Buck, let's begin today, and thank you for doing this, with what kind of cancer do you have or did you have, and then we'll work from there and just kind of, uh, you know, share your journey and and the step-by-step process through this. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to uh, have a forum to talk about this. It's something that nobody wants to talk about until you have to deal with it. And then once you deal with it, you're very anxious to talk about it because you know that it might help other people. Um, I had uh, cancer in my head and neck area. I had uh, cancer on my tongue and in my lymph nodes. And uh, I had no symptoms whatsoever. I had no indication that I was uh, dealing with cancer at all. And I, uh, my family doctor suggested, and I did this every year. I, I do it every year. I take a physical before I leave to go to Toronto and start the baseball season to make sure everything is okay. And, and uh, this one, this year, and well, last year in, in uh, March, my doctor suggested we take a test. And he said, this test is uh, supposed to detect 30 cancers at the very early stages. Insurance doesn't pay for it. It costs you $900, and I think we should try it. I said, all right, let's do it. So it was getting near the time I was going to leave Florida and go with the ball club to Toronto for opening day. And uh, his office called me up and says, we got your results. Uh, I said, okay, good. Just tell me what it is, and I'll be on my way. No, the doctor needs to talk to you. <laughs> Those are almost as bad of words as you've got cancer. <laughs> when, the, when you hear the doctor needs to talk to you. But uh, I went in and saw my my family doctor. He was actually the team doctor when I managed in 2001. And now he's got his own private practice. So we did the test. And out of 25 previous tests, I was the first one that had a positive result. And the first words out of his mouth there's only one doctor to see in the country, and that is Stephen Frank at MD Anderson in Houston. Buck, what was your reaction when you, you know, can you go back to that day? A lot of people don't want to remember that moment, but, you, you know, it's still fairly recent. Do you, do you have some recollection? And, and then, you know, who were the first calls you made? No, absolutely. You have a recollection of it. And, you know, obviously the reaction to the phone call from the office was the first one because I knew yeah. something wasn't right. The second one was, yes, you have something in there, and we've got to find out what it is. 
and uh, we're going to schedule a biopsy and schedule a, a CAT scan, and uh, we're going to do all of that, hopefully before you leave. Well, I couldn't get that done before I left. I had uh, a CAT scan, uh, and I had that done, and there was something there. They identified it for sure, and then I had uh, a biopsy done in Toronto. And that confirmed uh, what we all suspected. And then I started researching where I was going to have my treatment. But uh, yeah, I remember it vividly. And uh, it's something that, uh, you know, you just deal with. Uh, you know, at my age, uh, I've had a wonderful life and I've done a lot of great things. And this was just another bump in the road. And I said, well, I'm going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to get after this just like everybody else. Well, that's a great place to jump in on the next question. And that is, there's obviously the shock of hearing you have cancer. How long was that shock wave lasting through your life before you went, okay, I got to take this thing on? It didn't last long because I had to get to the next step. And right. uh, the next step was uh, obviously sharing it with my wife, sharing it with my son, and then uh, start thinking about doctors. But because my doctor had mentioned Houston and MD Anderson, that was uh, the first place I thought of. And then there's a great hospital here in Florida, Moffitt, in Tampa and um, you know, and then there was options in Canada as well. So we were thinking about how it was going to be. And then I found out that the treatment was going to be 35, 40 minutes a day. And then I would be able to go home. It wasn't inpatient treatment at all. It was radiation and I'd go back home. So I was thinking, well, if I'm gonna do that and it's gonna take seven, eight weeks, I might as well do it at home. And I made that decision and canceled my appointment in Houston. Well, on opening day, I'm on the field at Rogers Center and I get a phone call in my cell and I'm thinking it's my TV producer talking about details of the game. It's the doctor from Houston who said, don't make any decisions until you talk to me. Okay. So that made me fly to Houston. <laughs> well, the other one too, and you brought it up, there's the support unit that we have, the family thing, and they take the news very hard, obviously. Were you able to motivate them with your positivity to get you through this battle or were they feeding you more than you were feeding them in terms of positivity? My wife, Arlene was the one that said, we got this. And uh, my son, Casey uh, came and spent some time with us in Houston as well. Uh, my good friend, Garth Orge and his wife came to Houston and spent some time with us as well. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's something you just make up your mind. And there's a great connection. Don McDougal, who was, uh, president of Labatt Breweries in the 70s, and who was responsible for basically bringing the Blue Jays to Toronto. He was going through the same thing at the time that I got my notification. So Paul Beeston called me up and he said, you got to talk to McDougal. He's going through the same thing in New York right now. So I called Don McDougal while driving home from Toronto to Florida, and we spoke for an hour, and he talked about what he was receiving. He was getting pencil beam proton therapy. And he said, that's the only way to go with your head and neck cancer. He said, it's uh, less evasive. It's going to be uh, directed to, directly at your cancer tumors. And uh, you have to investigate that. And that's what I ended up receiving at, uh, at Houston. Uh, Buck, as a former uh, professional athlete, a manager, someone who's lived their life at the highest competitive level in your sport, did you draw on things that you, you used as a player for either motivation resilience, strength? I mean, were there some things, old skills, let's say, that you could call on? Yeah, I probably did. I didn't really relate it to baseball, but at the same time, I've always had to fight for my position in baseball because somebody was always going to take my job. 
So I just kept working hard at it and just let things happen. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, um, I never went into spring training camp uh, thinking I had a job made. I always uh, had to work hard at it. And the same was uh, true with my broadcasting. I started out uh, not really liking it and started out kind of fighting it because I was no longer a player. But, uh, you know, you just do certain things and you go about in a certain way and you don't need to tell anybody how tough you are or what you're doing. You just do it. And that's kind of what Don McDougall told me. He said, um, just think of this as another job, something you have to do, and there's no getting around it. You just have to listen to what they say. I'm always fascinated to ask people and get their responses to, you get calls from people that you'd never expected when you're going through something like this. Uh, we've certainly, we've discussed it okay. numerous times about, I was surprised that person called. I never saw that coming. Did you have anybody that called you out of the blue and was able to kind of give you a pep talk and maybe give you a little more jolt of energy and you never saw that coming? I had so many of those calls, it's uh, hard to fathom. And I, I had a notebook and I put down all of the names of the people that called me and I tried to reach out to them and, uh, you know, answer just about every message that I received, whether it was a text message or a letter or a note or a phone call. And uh, probably... The biggest surprise phone call I got was Hawk Harrelson called me and he said, whatever you need, I have a house in Orlando. If you need to stay in that area, you can have my house as long as you need it. I mean, things like that, just one right after another. The Canadian fans were so great across Canada. And I heard from so many like you two. I know you both have dealt with cancer or they're dealing with cancer that once you have it, you hear from so many people and you're, I, I was amazed at how many people have been touched by cancer, whether it's in their family or themselves personally or a close friend. But um, it, it's sad that, uh, you know, there are so many people that have dealt with it. And until you have it, you don't really realize the magnitude of the disease. Uh, Buck, given your profile uh, and, and a public-facing personality, do you feel a responsibility to, A, share the story, share the detail, but also, you know, deliver a message and perhaps some advice to, to fans, let's say? Yes, I, I certainly feel that way. And certainly the people that reached out to me, I have addressed that. But I think in general, I think most people that hear me speak of it understand that that's the biggest thing you can do is accept it, Take a positive attitude, look it in the face, and just give it the best effort you can. And, you know, there are certain things that we can't control, that's for sure. You know, there's somebody up there in heaven that has a great experience and knows exactly what's going on, but we can't control a lot of things. So we say this all the time in sports, control the controllables. Do what you can to control those things, and everything else will take care of itself. And, and you can't really worry about something you have no control over. Just take care of what you can. And that's what I always thought about. There's one thing that sticks out of my memory, and that is it, it was you going back to work and watching the fan reaction as you were either – I think you were either walking in or walking out of the building – yeah. And I thought to myself, uh, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I can't imagine what it was like for you to go through that. It was um, it was after the game, no question about it. And, and they caught me off guard in the uh, second or third inning. Uh, they didn't go to commercial. And they announced my return over the public address system at Rogers Center. And then the players came out of the field. And that, that was probably the most emotional time of my life to see that kind of reaction from the players and the fans. 
And my son and his family was there at Rogers Center. My granddaughters were there. And then after the game, we walked out of the gate and I was just walking back to my hotel and my son and his family was with me and they started to applaud. Somebody just started clapping. And then the whole place was clapping. And it was just like, not a whole lot was said. They were just clapping and it was so cool and such a great moment. And I'll never forget it. And you know, when I do at some point down the road, finish my career, I don't need a going away party. I've already had that party when I got back to Rogers Center last year. Buck, we're going to see some changes to baseball. Uh, these, Some of them, you know, we've not seen, but others have been, you know, marinating, if you will, in the minor leagues for a bit. You wrote a book uh, looking ahead to baseball's future and some of the things you thought would be uh, good for the game. What, how are you looking or anticipating this coming season and seeing some of the changes now in front of us, what that's going to do for the quality of the game and some of the other things that some feel needed to be changed about baseball? Well, it's interesting because um, you know my first year in professional baseball was 1967. So there were so many things that were different. In 1968, the mound was 15 inches high. 1969, they dropped the mound five inches. So that's a dramatic adjustment. I mean, that is a legitimate adjustment that took time for people to get used to. In 1969, there were four expansion teams that came in. So the league average went from something like 230 to 248. The whole league hit like 230 that year. Of course, 68 was the Bob Gibson year when he had a 1.12 earned run average and the pitchers were dominating. So they made a dramatic change. I don't think these changes they've made this year are that dramatic. I think players, we've got the best players in the world and they will make adjustments. And when I hear players talk about, oh, they try to change the game. I think the way players have played the game today led to these dramatic rule changes. If they would have played the game the way we played it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there wouldn't have been any slow games. There wouldn't have been any delays. Nobody would have been worried about their brand. And everybody used to hit the ball from foul line to foul line. There wouldn't have been any shifts. They never shifted against George Brett, Don Mattingly, or Wade Boggs. But I don't think the players made adjustments to the shifts, and it created the need to legislate banning of the shifts. So I think the players are responsible as much as anybody for the changes. You know, it's weird when you talk to broadcasters, especially guys who played uh, a little while ago, I will say, veterans. Uh, how tough is it for you in the broadcast booth to not want to always go back and say, well, you know, when I played it was like this. You do a great job of focusing on the game the way it is now, and you have to be congratulated on that. Is that tough? No, it's not tough because you have to remember who your audience is. And they're the current fans. And this is their game now. It's not my game. I can't go back and say, man, you should have seen Willie Mays. He was so much better than Mike Trout. It's ridiculous. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear why Mike Trout is good. They want to hear why Austin Matthews is good. They don't want to hear comparisons to Bobby Orr and Austin Matthews. They, they want to see, you tell me what's great about this game today. And in fact, we are selling this game today. That's what we're doing. Yeah, if we're having a beer someday after a game and I want to talk about my era against this era, you'll hear some different stories. But as a broadcaster, my job is to bring the game to the audience, and this is the game in 2023. Is it tough to stay updated? Do you ha how much time do you have to do on your, on your game prep? It's one thing to go down and watch uh, BP, but how about writing? And uh, reading and all the other stuff. Right, look at this. Oh yeah. Yeah, you, you just yeah. There <laughs> yes. you go. That answers it. How many pages that is? 
the World Baseball Classic, I got it all right here. And you know what? It's like ongoing. You never stop. And it's 24 hours a day, 27, you know, seven days a week. And it's just something you do all the time. You got to keep up with it. There's so many changes. Years ago, before free agency, players played with the same team year in and year out. Weren't many changes. You knew who played there. You knew Mickey Mantle was number seven, and he was going to play center field for the Yankees, and there weren't any many changes. Now we've got Brandon Belt, Kevin Kiermaier, Chris Bassett, Eric Swanson, just to name a few guys that are new. They're going to be important in, in Dalton Varsho. So you have to keep up with everything. And I do that by reaching out to my fellow broadcasters, former teammates, former managers or current managers that I know, and uh, just talk to them about, uh, you know, give me your thoughts about this player. So it's uh, it's ongoing. It's always working. Buck, if you're not calling a game, what player will make you stop what you're doing, sit down and watch him? Roddy. <laughs> Vladdy is one guy, and, uh, you know, of course, Aaron Judge, uh, you know, Mike Trout's still got that. Uh, Trey Turner, if you think about Trey Turner, I mean, Trey Turner could have played in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or today. He's got all the skills. Uh, you know, I love to watch Verlander. I love to watch Scherzer. Those, those guys that have been able to stop time and continue to excel. And, uh, you know, and for me, I think that just proves that you can't create a ball player and you can't dictate how a player is going to play. You have to look at each individual and let them dictate how much they play and how long they play in their career. And Verlander and Scherzer are two great examples of that. When you were playing and you're thinking about wrapping it up, how far away was broadcasting from your mind? Dave and I were talking about the fact that some of the best uh, color commentators – for some reason, they're catchers. What, is that because you just see the game from a different perspective? Like, why, why is that? Catchers are involved in every aspect of the game. In spring training, they're there catching pitchers every day. They're involved in the bunt defense. They're involved in base stealing defense. They're involved in outfield throws. They're involved in everything. So when a pitching coach goes and talks to the pitcher, the catcher's standing right there. So he knows everything that's going on on the field. And Dusty Baker told me this many years ago. Dusty said, I, I wish I would have caught because you see the whole game in front of you. You're the only position on the field that sees the whole game. Everybody else has a partial view of the game. Catchers have a full view of the game from foul line to foul line. And I think that's why so many people have been involved in broadcasting our former catchers. And would the same apply to man managers? I mean, just that 360-degree that view and vision of the game and all the elements that are required. I mean, lots of great uh, catchers have gone on. I think so. And, and I think that's why you've seen a limited amount of pitchers as managers. They, they just have a, a one-dimensional view of the game. And Bob Lemon was an exception, of course, and uh, Roger Craig was a successful manager. But there haven't been a lot of pitchers. And Tommy Lasorda was a pitcher, but he, he never had a long major league career, but he had a phenomenal career as a manager. But, yeah, pitchers, uh, they just have a, a different view of the game, and their game is all one-on-one -on -one with the batter. And you don't see the, the defense. And, I mean, the great pitchers do. And, and I always say that, for me, to be a great pitcher, you've got to be a baseball player, and you've got to understand the game. And I think we've seen that over the years with Smoltz and Maddox and Clemens and Verlander and those guys. They were great baseball players. 
Do you have a career highlight as a player? And then what about as a broadcaster? Is there one or two things that stand out there? Yeah, there's a couple of things. And everybody that uh, I talk to, all the fans, always talk about me breaking my leg. So that kind of sums up my playing career. <laughs> but as a broadcaster, I guess so there's a couple of things. Uh, the Cal Ripken game, I, I worked the Cal Ripken game when he broke uh, Lou Gehrig's record 21-31. I worked that for ESPN with Chris Berman, and we won an Emmy Award for that. And it was a tremendous night. And we we actually didn't speak for 22 minutes while Ripken made his way around the field. And for Chris Berman, of course, that's uh, an eternity. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, now, and another one that's a highlight that it really kind of happened accidentally was Jose Bautista's 50th home run. And uh, it was in the first inning against King Felix at Rogers Center. And uh, he swings and there's a drive, get up, get up. And all of a sudden I realized this is 50. And it just kind of came out like that. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't think about it. I, I didn't prepare anything. And I think most broadcasters will tell you they don't think about what they're going to say when that moment happens. But that's one that I, I think uh, I, I kind of it, it caught me off guard. But I think I was fortunate enough to capture the moment before the ball went over the fence and it ended up a one nothing game. Buck, where do you come out on the argument or discussion around old school, new school, home run celebrations and that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think we are seeing a trend back to a little bit more in the middle. And I, I think with Bruce Bochy coming back, Dusty Baker winning the World Series, Bob Melvin managing it in San Diego, Buck Showalter managing in the Mets, you know, these guys are coming back into the game. And another thing that's evident, too, is the fact that Don Mattingly is the bench coach for the Toronto Blue Jays. And we've got Victor Martinez in camp with the Blue Jays and Edwin Encarnacion's coming back in camp. So they understand the value of experience. And I think for a few years, experience was discounted. And you can't replace experience. You can't replace Victor Martinez talking about hitting to Vladdy and Bo and all the other young hitters. Edwin Encarnacion, he's, he's done it. And he's had, and these players are right at the brink of the in analytical introduction to baseball. So they have seen the analytics creep in and they still have the feel of what it takes to be successful in the game as a player, as a, it's a, it's a personal game. And there's so much emotion that it gets into the game. You can't look at a printout and say, okay, we're going to make this guy a player. It doesn't work like that. If it worked like that, everybody would play because we're saying you go to school for five years and you're going to be a baseball player because we're going to teach you how to play doesn't work. I saw Don Mattingly walking in uh, at training, uh, spring training in Toronto, or in, not in Toronto, for the Blue Jays. And I just had that Calgary Flames Edmonton Oilers kind of feel about me thinking, <laughs> there's something not quite right here. This just feels yeah. a little weird, but baseball's baseball, right? Uh, he is something else, boy. He has been so active in camp, and he has gotten freedom from John Snyder to do whatever he wants to do. And you'll see him with the first baseman, and he's got Vladdy doing all kinds of subtleties at first base. He'll talk hitting, he'll talk base running, he'll talk everything. And uh, John Snyder has so much confidence and uh, so much confidence in his ability that he is going to utilize Don Mattingly exactly as he should. Lean on him for experience. And he said, you know what? We're going to have a great relationship here. And, and Snyder grew up in New Jersey, a Yankee fan, and of course, Don Mattingly was his favorite player, so that helps too. You know, when we talked a few weeks ago, I was excited when you told me you're coming back this season. 
How tough a decision was that, or was that a real easy decision for you? You know, I came back last year, and I came back in July last year, and the network, Rogers Sportsnet, was tremendous with me because they determined, even before I even thought about it, that I shouldn't travel right out of the chute. So I only did home games at Rogers Center, which allowed me to get ample rest and build my strength back up and you know, and you have something done in your throat and your your voice isn't quite as strong as you would like it to be. And it took a while. And and I didn't really realize how much strength I had been robbed of, just physically, just the emotions. And I couldn't lose any weight when I was going through treatment because if you lose weight, that affects the treatment and how it's delivered. So I had to eat and I, I just kept eating and maintained my weight. But once I got done with that, I've lost the sense of taste and my saliva is diminished. And so I don't eat so much. So I've lost about 37 pounds, but I feel great. And it's not because I'm ill or not healthy. It's just because I'm not eating as much, but that'll come back too. But as far as coming back, it's something I've done forever. I have been a broadcaster much longer than I have been a player. And uh, you know what? I'm around the greatest players in the world on a daily basis. And I get to do something I love and, Quite honestly, I, I consider that I've never had a real job. I'm just very fortunate to work at something I love. Parting parting comments about people who are in this cancer fight. Uh, we are both huge guys about being, uh, we're very public in, in terms of broadcasting and that type of thing in our market. And we try to put as much of a positive spin out there as we can, set the bar high, shoot for it, that kind of thing. Do you have any some advice that you would give somebody who might be going through the same battle as we've all done? Yeah, I think your attitude has a lot to do with uh, how well you handle the treatment. Uh, If you look at it as like, I'm doomed and this is not going to work, or if you take the approach that I am dealing with the best doctors that I can get to, I am uh, confident in their ability. They know a lot more about it than I do, and I'm going to listen to their advice, and I'm going to do exactly what they say. And as I said, my wife, Arlene, was right there for me every single day, just keeping me upbeat, not letting me get down. Um, You know, they gave you a bunch of pain relievers and all that stuff. I never took a pain pill. I never did any of that stuff. I just didn't want to give into that. And and we got through it. And you know what? It's uh, it's not pleasant. It's uh, a lot of work. And uh, but it it makes you better. And when you get better, you, you really feel like you've accomplished something. Thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. And uh, so proud of the way you've handled your cancer fight. It's great. It's great to see a big smile on your face. I think you're looking great. Of course, that's because it's how, how warm is it in Florida today? <laughs> well, it kind of got a little warmer today. It was up to 83, 84. So it's pretty nice, fellas. You can see by my face that I've been out in the sun yeah. a little bit. Hey, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Great to be with you guys. You're doing a heck of a job and it's a wonderful topic to talk about. No question about it. Good health, Buck. Take care. Thank you.